Is that everybody then? Am I close to starting time? Yeah. Yeah. Head off. Head off onto the great journey. Thanks for joining us. You're in for a great experience. If you're like me, you might love books, but the name Rare Books conjures up images of dusty attics and even drier librarians. Thankfully, I can assure you that is not the case. In fact, the books we're about to delve into contain some remarkable stories about people and events that have helped shape literary history. Our librarian, Georgia, will help us find our way through this unique collection. She's well qualified, having worked with these books at Auckland Central Library for many years. There is some unique terminology that she will explain, but I'll step in to help out where I can. Uh, We're going to start um, with medieval manuscripts. You know, I mean, it seems sort of mad that I could do a talk on rare books and not include a medieval manuscript, since for most people they are so dramatically different from the way books are now and often so beautiful that, um, you know, they're they're so unusual that people really have a very strong response to them. Um, And for that reason, I'm not opening them until later in the the talk. Um, (laughs) Because I want to give give a little bit of background um, because, you know, if I start talking, if I open them, you know, we all get transfixed by how they look and how lovely they look and what they're made of and who made them and, you know, and all those lovely things, which we will look at. Um, But initially, I just want to give you a little bit of background because we wave these terms around medieval manuscripts and um, and that sort of um, is such an enormous um, period of time, the medieval period, that I feel we ought to sort of get our get our bearings a bit better um, because this manuscript is from the late medieval period. This is from 1471. We begin with medieval manuscripts, our earliest rare books. The word manuscript, from the Latin, literally means written by hand. In this episode, you'll find out how they were constructed and the various materials used in their production. Get your quills ready and join me as we journey back to the beginning. The medieval period, in its broadest um, definition, usually goes from about the 5th century right through to the Renaissance. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, over a a thousand years um, and it's not the same. (laughs) One end of the medieval period is nothing like the same as the beginning of it. Um, The books aren't the same. They're very different, the early um, books for the medieval period, those that survive, and there's not that many of them. Um, And we're we're sort of looking at something that's so much later. And the other thing is that the political landscape and the landscape of the church um, is so different by the time these manuscripts are made um, compared to how it was at the beginning of the medieval period. So the beginning of the medieval period, you know, this is the dissolution of the Roman Empire. Um, There's a lot of um, nomadic tribes that sort of move across Europe and settle themselves in different parts of Europe. Um, There's a sort of disintegration of a lot of the Roman organisation, um, and there's these little pockets of, of kingdoms that sort of slowly grow up in the, into the um, 
into the sort of Europe we might we might know today. Um, but it takes a long, long time, and there's a whole lot of variations and movements of borders and sort of dynastic stories of kingdoms that rise and fall. And, you know, it's it's a very long, complicated period. And during that whole period, the church is one of the most stable organisations to emerge um, in a sense as a, as a form of, of international organisation that covers all these... Um, all, all the relationships with these different tribal groups and different kingdoms. And so when I talk about this being a missile, this is a service book for saying the Mass in the Catholic Church. To our minds now, that might sound like quite a um, sort of narrow focus of interest or very specific faith-based sort of book. But in the medieval period, the Catholic Church is the only church in Western Europe. There is no other church in Western Europe. This is before the Reformation, before the you know the the um, before Luther, you know, before Presbyterians and Anglicans and all the other variations of, of Protestantism that occur throughout Western Europe. The Catholic Church is the only church, um, and it is in many ways a sort of um, almost like a parallel um, political um, organization that covers Europe. Um, because although it has this this faith-based religious um, basis, um, it's the only place really other than, well, not even, you can't even do it very well in a court. Um, it's the only place educated people have a career. You know, it's, it's the one place where education occurs reliably um, through the medieval period. I mean, it starts off um, through monasteries in some ways. So, you know, I, I often say when I'm talking about medieval manuscripts, you know, that most people's notion of a medieval manuscript is a monk in a cloister working away in the dark by himself for years and years and years on one thing. Um, you know, that's just very, a very narrow part in the early period of, of, of the medieval world. Um, it changes, you know, um, cathedral schools develop Universities develop, you know, this is the beginning of Oxford and University in Paris and, and Cambridge, obviously, and Bologna in Italy. And, you know, there are um, slow growths of, of universities, but they're all related in some way to the church. Um, the church is the organisation, that's, that's where they gain their education, um, and it's often the organisation that supports them as they um, act as teachers, um, so it, it, it's a very um, it's a very different world from the world we live in. And while we look at, as I say, medieval manuscripts as these beautiful works of art, um, they're not, um, you know, they're, they're made in a very specific context. Uh, and the context for this particular one, so this is a missal. So through the um, early medieval period, um, if you were going to, uh, as a priest, was sort of saying a mass they would use a number of different books. So they would have um, the Psalter, the Psalms for singing and, and often um, uh, uh, some music, written music as a chant. Um, they would have the readings of the Gospels, so the readings from the Bible from the four Gospels. They would have the readings from the Epistles in a separate book. Um, and then they'd have prayers, extra prayers added into it. And these were all consulted you know, at different times during the Mass, um, depending on the day and, you know, what, what the calendar said and what the Mass was, um, you know, what particular time of the year it was. Um, and it's not until the 13th century 
um, so, you know, 1,200 and whatever, that books start to emerge that contain all these in one volume, or in our case, two. So, <laughs> so th- this is the sort of growth of a, of a certain type of book where all the texts that a priest would need to use um, for saying the Mass are all in one book. So this was actually produced in 14, around about 1471, and it's a very exact date. And the reason why, <laughs> reason why I'm able to use that date is because of this book. Um, so this is still the um, prime um, source for us, catalogue, of medieval and Renaissance manuscripts in New Zealand collections. I mean, it was produced in the late 80s, um, and the two experts who um, are responsible for it three, I think, are on the cover, but it's Christopher de Hamel, um, who's still um, one of the most um, important medieval manuscript scholars. Um, He's retired now but still writing, Um, who is a New Zealander, um, so was brought up in Dunedin, went to Otago University and first embarked on his manuscript career by looking at medieval manuscripts in Dunedin Public Library. So there is hope for anybody (laughs) in the sense you can become a medieval scholar in New Zealand Um, 1471 and where it's where it's from is Besançon very specifically Besançon in eastern France Um, and Besançon is one of those border towns really Um, it's in eastern France I haven't been there so I'm relying here on the Wonders of Google Earth. Um, it is a. Um, it was a Roman. Uh, it was a Roman um, garrison town. It's because it's on the border with the Alps. It's, bet- it's in. It's in eastern France, virtually as close as you can get to the Jura Mountains without being in Switzerland. So it, it, it's in a very um, um, contested sort of area of France in terms of borders. Um, and at this particular time, when this was made. Um, it was a very contested period in um, in the history of that particular part of France because this is the time when medieval kingdoms are um, where their boundaries are very fluid. You know, they, it depends so much on who the um, dynastic head of a family is and who they marry um, as to where the boundaries of, of territories lie. Um, and at this point... <clears throat> Um, there was quite a strong uh, dynasty um, of counts, dukes, I can't remember whether were counts or dukes, of Burgundy. So the dukes of Burgundy in and out of the medieval period were like lesser, lesser had lesser royal kingdoms around the edge of France at different times and in different, pla- in different versions of, of Burgundy. So Burgundy now is sort of... Um, the county that is closer to France near Besançon. So Besançon is in in a in a um, area called Franche Franche Comté, um, but Burgundy is is the county next to it, the one we now call Burgundy. Um, but at this time, the counts and dukes of Burgundy were also based um, further north, sort of in Belgium and around the northern um, borders of France. And so they were. They had like lots of little, um, little discrete 
areas of territory sort of dotted around the dotted around the circumference of France, which of course did not please the French kings. Um, and so there was quite a lot of jostling for power. And one particular um, French um, Burgundian um, duke called um, Charles the Bold, by which you have a fairly idea, good idea of what his techniques were, um, was trying to to expand and died in battle, unsurprisingly. Um, but the um, the archbishop for whom this um, set of missal volumes was made was a man called Charles de Neufchâtel, um, and he was based in Besançon during Charles the Bold's. He was, you know, he was he was consecrate, you know, consecrated as Archbishop of Besançon during, I think, Charles's father's reign, and then he was Archbishop of Besançon. He was a supporter of the Burgundian dukes and all the rest of it until um, he swapped sides. And by swapping sides, he then, naturally enough, um, offended the um, Burgundian house and was sent into exile. So he went into exile, but his books remained in Besançon for quite some time, possibly until the 17th century. We don't exactly know when they left um, Besançon because some other books in his library still remain there um, in the um, municipal library of Besançon. Um, So we know that he had an extensive library. Some are still there. Um, there's a couple in the National Library in um, Paris, Bibliothèque Nationale, um, and there's this one, or two volumes of one. This is the first time that I've actually shown these two volumes together. Um, normally I show one or the other, and, and that is partly because they are such prized volumes that we don't want them to get overused, and obviously when we, t- when we take them out, and we open them up, we expose them to light. And one of the things that almost everybody says when they see medieval manuscripts is that the colours are so fantastic and the colours are still so good. The reason why they are so good is because they stay closed 99% of the time. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean you can't open them, but that's one of the reasons why, you know, we don't have them on display all the time. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I don't get both volumes out, you know, when I'm showing people. But the other one actually was was because for a long time this one had quite a, a bad um, break in the binding. Sort of, da- you can almost still see it really on the spine there. It's sort of because it's quite a it's quite a um, heavy volume, and you can see there that there's a sort of residual um, sense that the leather. Was- well, we were very lucky that um, David's predecessor Paul Taylor um, worked on this manuscript in order to make it. Um, us able, in a sense, to use it again because we had, by virtue of having that break in it, um, ended up by not really getting it out very much for obvious reasons. Would it always have been in two volumes? Yes, it's always been in two volumes. Exactly how? Yeah, yeah. So when I was checking again with, you know, the the, the bibliographical um, truth of everything, um, volume one actually covers a sort of, it's the winter volume, and volume two is the summer volume. And so it, it does actually have um, the services for a sort of set period of time. Um, and then the second volume starts from where this leaves off. And so it is a natural, there is a natural division. It divides at Easter um, and Advent. So the two big um, 
church um, festivals um, are, are the divisions for these two for these two um, volumes. Um, but one of the interesting things, and obviously it's true when you look at them, is that there are actually two different artists in this book, um, and we can have a look at that as we go. But initially I'll just open up volume one um, and we can start to have a look at it. The binding is 17th century. It's not medieval, as I'm sure you realise that it's not medieval, but it, you know, it's quite nice to know when. So it's a 17th century binding, which means it's not a surprise that in the, in the 20 first century, we actually have to have repair done to it because that's what bindings are for. Um, you know, they protect the interior. Um, and many manuscripts have, have had more than one rebinding in their lifetime. Um, so this one is 17th century. Um, it came from Sir George Grey. Um, and I'm just opening it there for um, one of the miniatures for you to have a look at. Um, and this is the miniature um, for the nativity. Um, so I'll just move it around a little bit. A word on miniatures. Miniatures were called such because the outlines of the drawings were often gone over with minium, a Latin name for the red lead used. It was not to do with their size. The corresponding verb meaning to colour with minium was miniere, the noun form of which was miniatura, meaning to illuminate or illustrate. The fact that these illustrations were also small in size led to the association of the modern word, miniature. So many of you I know have seen this manuscript before, um, but it you know, it doesn't, it doesn't ever fail to dazzle, does it, really? I mean, it's, it is spectacular. Um, it, it, it's, a com it's, you know, it's the combination of the borders. I'll move um, the initials. I'll just move this over so you can have a look. Um, you know, the initials, the miniatures, the little paintings. Often people have been a coat of arms. Yes, here. absolutely, and that's yeah. And you've reminded me of <laughs> something I was going to say, which is the fact that after Charles was exiled, um, his he, he was the one who commissioned the manuscript, um, and it was made in Besançon. We can say that for by various um, reasons, and um, he had his own coats of arms um, in the borders, and there is actually also and I. It's not on this border, but we'll see it probably later on. There is actually also a C often in the margin, C for Charles, and crosses, you know, sort of indicating his um, his status in the church. Um, and, at, you know, at the point where, either the point where he left or not long after, um, his, own, his ownership has been removed from the manuscript. Um, and because this is vellum, this is skin that we're looking at here, that this is written on, it does have layers, and you can scrape off the top layer. Um, and indeed, when um, when scribes made mistakes and they registered they'd made a mistake quite quickly, or even when somebody was correcting mistakes, they would scrape the surface of the manuscript and you can see where those corrections have occurred and where they've written over the top of it. Um, so it, you can actually remove elements of a book. I mean, you can see that it's been removed but it no longer is no longer reflecting um, his ownership um, by removing that coats of arms. Um, 
Is there a why, um, why the border goes round some of the pages and not others? Well, it's the state, it's the significance of what's on that page. So it's the beginning of a section, either the beginning of a of a mass or a big. In the same way that the um, initials, the different sizes of the initials, are sort of codes for where you're up to um, in a book. Um, and the bigger the initial, um, the more important that break is in. You know, it's a chapter or a new book, and the same with the miniatures. The miniatures. No page numbers. No pa- page numbers exactly. So you can see that there are like pencil marks on the folio, on the folios here, which have been done by library staff at some point in its history in order to um, identify. They are pencils. <laughs> um, in order to identify the page numbers and the you know the folios and so on. Um, otherwise, you have difficulty referring to it. Um, you don't know what... In the medieval um, period, of course, they would refer just to the particular... Um, either the, the initial... I mean, at the, um, the, the beginning of the, of the book. Um, so in the same way that they didn't have title pages, um, they would always refer to a book by, by the first few words of the first page. Which they call the incapit, which is the beginning, basically. Um, and so, um, the if we're going to sort of impose our organisation on the book, it's so that we can identify what page it is, and um, we can, um, uh, yeah, make it clearer to people what's on what page. So they use those numbers, for instance, in that bibliography what folio that particular um, initial is on. If you look in the margins, you can sometimes see some little, you know, cr- different creatures that are sometimes um, birds and there are, and, and often there are, you know, like strawberries and different flowers that you can, you know, you can identify. Um, but there are also mythical creatures that turn up periodically in the borders. Um, and then these ones, I really love the way the those look with the um, litany of saints. So this is basically just repeating the names of saints, and it, you know, if you, do, it's just the endless repetition of S, which is so lovely on those pages. Um, really clean these pages. It's really clean. Well, you see, they aren't. They don't have miniatures, so they haven't been displayed much. So or opened much, probably. Um, and then. Here, people often love these too, with the chants, um, the music. Yeah. When was it last used for its purpose? Last used as a missile. Probably before it went. Before it seems to have been gone from Besançon by the 17th century, and probably at that point it had gone to a book collector. So. Yeah, 17th century, um, maybe. Um, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it's often very hard to know um, the history of a book over how many, you know, hundreds of years. Um, and we don't, I mean, we know that, that Gray um, got it in the 1860s, but we don't know exactly when he got it. He got it on approval, though, we do know that. Sure. <laughs> they were sent to him on the assumption that he wouldn't send it back. Um, and then, of course, I want to li- open it on these pages, which are the two full page. Um, there's one on the other on the back of this, and you can see that these have been um, extensively uh, 
looked at by mm. virtue of the grubbiness of the mm. edge of the, of the vellum, you know. Um, and that's not necessarily the library. Um, it's not necessarily the fault of the library. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's it's had a lot of, of use. And then the other page, which is on the back, is this fantastic image, um, which is God and Majesty, um, and the um, symbols of the of the four gospels round in the corners. So there's Luke, who's the lion, and there's um, Saint John here. No, that's Saint John. Is it? Yes, that's Saint John, the eagle, Saint John. Matthew and Mark. So that's Mark, and this is Matthew. Um, and again, you can see the obliteration of the um, coats of arms, but there is a nice big. Archbishop's Cross down the bottom there, um, but I, I want to leave it open because really I want to be able, you to be able to see the comparison between this one mm -hmm. and this 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 is the second volume, um, the summer volume as I said, and the different um, styles of illumination. Um, so this one is the Resurrection. So we start at Easter. So this is into. So that's and I mean it is very similar, but the actual style of the miniatures are different. Mm -hmm. The colours are different and we'll, it's quite clear when we get to the same part of the manuscript as that one. Um, can you see the birds? You can see birds. And then there's these sort of rather peculiar creatures down the bottom plus the, um, the coat of arms. And then there's the sea up here with the cross through it. So that's, you know, a real um, statement of ownership by Charles. The detail of that tiled floor. Yeah, I know. The interiors are fascinating, aren't they? And so, you know, this is, this is, this is really the cusp of the Renaissance. This is what we're talking about. So 1470, you know, printing is invented in around about 1450. So we're at both the transition period between medieval manuscripts and printing, but also at the high point of the sort of decorative um, um, illuminations that occur in medieval manuscripts. So, you know, the um, the famous um, Trey Richeur, you know, the Limbaugh brothers um, of the Duke de Berry, I mean, that's right at the end of the medieval manuscript period. And it's, <coughs> you, you know, it's a sort of like the high point, and yet it's also the point where it all changes um, and we move into um, a new technology. And it's, you know, it's that tension between um, the... Um, the skill and the level of of um, technical expertise that that a medieval manuscript displays from this period, and the way that the demand for books was um, fueling a desire for a new technology to cope with that demand, um, that is the sort of interesting element um, to the to, to the creation of the market for printing. Um, and at the same time, you know, right through the early period of, of the early printed books, um, there is a very um, strong market for luxury medieval manuscripts still, you know, into the Renaissance, you know, the Venetian, Medici and so on were still um, commissioning manuscripts because this was so fantastic and so beautiful um, compared to the what they thought of as the rather shoddy mass-produced <laughs> yeah, that's just for the, you know, <laughs> we've got the money and the taste to produce a much better book than that. Um, so, you know, that is the, um, 
that is the period. I mean, I mean, and this is, as I say, the period of that um, whole... I mean, in, in Britain, for instance, if we think about what's happening in the 1470s, I mean, this is right at the end of the Wars of the Roses. So this is the wars between the um, Lancastrians and the Yorkists. Edward IV is on the throne, and when he dies, there's this whole um, scramble for power, um, which results eventually in Henry VII, the first Tudor king, um, gaining, um, beating Richard III and um, beginning the Tudor dynasty. So, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of quite interesting when you think about what's going on in other parts of the world. I mean, this is in France, um, where, they're, you know, the French king um, is fighting the Count of Burgundy and, and at the same time people are producing these astonishing books. And these are produced by artisans and workshops. They're not... As I was saying before, um, when we're talking about medieval monks, and um, they're not produced by monks; they're actually produced by professional bookmakers of books. And here is the page I want you to have a look at, compared to that one. So here are the two big crucifixion scenes in this book, and you can see how different they are by two different artists, different colours, different choices of colours. Um, they're, you know, and yet it's the same. The same book, the same workshop, but they've been produced by um, by different artists. And when you see the two side by side like that, you can see what Margaret Mannion was talking about when she described there being two artists, at least in this in this book. They're anonymous. We don't know who they are. We don't even really have you know a name like the master of the something or other um, to go with it. Um, but but they have identified a, a few other manuscripts held in other collections. Um, there's a, something in the Pierpont Morgan that's produced a little bit with, with illustrations similar to this one, I think. Um, How does it take to produce these books? Well, I mean, that's always the one that Christopher de Hamel talks about um, and tries to calculate <laughs> by um, scrambling through a page <laughs> with a quill. Um, <laughs> and basically the answer is they don't take as long as you think. <laughs> because A, um, there's more people involved than just one person. So it's never the work of one person. It's work, a work of a workshop. Um, they start off with a gathering of um, vellum leaves um, and they can be producing those simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So um, the text is, is divided up and, and different scribes can be working on their bit um, simultaneously and they leave a space for the um, illuminations to follow. Um, and then they do um, the initials, which can be done by different people. Um, and the, the illuminations are often done by an apprentice and a master or, you know, a, a, more than one person, even when the design is done by somebody who's obviously um, an artist. These two have got definitely done by artists. Um, but there'll be a whole backup of apprentices, particularly, you know, creating the colours because the, all these colours are um, made from scratch. Um, they're not, you know, you don't have a paint box. <laughs> you have a set of pigments um, which you've purchased and then you have to grind or or um, add different additives in and you certainly have to add in um, the the different ways of making, uh, making it into paint from a pigment. Um, so you've got to get the binding agents right and all those sorts of things. So, I mean, the obvious one people always talk about is the blue, um, which, you know, is lapis lazuli, um, probably. Um, but we don't even know that for certain because until you 
until you scrape off a little bit of, um, see there's two blues there, and that blue looks quite different to that one. Um, so this again is God and Majesty. Um, I'll just try and get that sort of a bit better. Um, and again, there's the there's the um, there's the four gospels, but in that case, this the, these are actually painted with gold. So this is like gold paint on this one, not gold leaf. Um, there's gold leaf here in the halo. Um, yeah, but the colours, uh, you know, it, 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 unless you actually have a sample, you can't actually be certain what it is. In order to do that, you have to destroy something. Wow. So we haven't had a sample taken. Um, <laughs> we did, um, a number of years ago, we were very lucky to have a, um, an expert out here um, in New Zealand called Cheryl Porter, who's an um, expert in medieval pigments, and she talked a lot about both the processes of, of, of um, identifying pigments um, but also the variety, so that you might think something is lapis lazuli, but it might be azurite, you know, until you check it, you don't know. Mm. Um, so there's all sorts of um, interesting um, substitutes <laughs> that that workshops could have for um, a very expensive pigment, and lapis lazuli is because there's a, you can only get it in Afghanistan, so that's it, mm. no other place. So if you can't get anything that's been traded down the Silk Road, then you have to go for something else that's a little bit more closer to home and not so expensive. Um, but the glamorous manuscripts, obviously, that was part of their um, cachet, really, was to have that um, very expensive um, pigment um, as, part, as part of, you know, that's why it's a luxury object. You know, you've, you've sourced the very best that can be found, the most expensive You've got the best artists, you know, you've, and it might be to your honour, um, but you also have to remember that probably they were honouring God as well. You know, it's not all about, it always sounds like it's sort of self-serving, but in this period, it's it's not so straightforward. <laughs> you know, this is this is for the honour of God and also for, for Charles, um, and that's why um, they would do the you know utterly best they could um, to produce something as beautiful as this. Um, are they are they are they illu called illuminated because they're illustrated they're or because they're illuminated because they they're produced with colours. Okay. So it, it, it's colours and it's um, it's actually and metals. So it's using gold and silver. Although silver it does occur, but it often. Um, oxidizes, so you can't really tell it's silver now. Uh, it usually just looks grey, but we have got a few manuscripts where we ha where it is there is silver, um, but it doesn't look silver anymore. It's just gone grey. Um, so it's it's colours and 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 metals. That's illumination. Um, miniatures um, is around painting, um, so they're not about the size. That's just because over the years. <laughs> um, it's come to mean these small little paintings, but that's not what it, that's what, not not where it where it originated in terms of its derivation. You know, in terms of its was it, was it derivation. Does, does, do you know much about the process of like working working with the vellum? Like, was did yeah, that have yeah, to be that, stretched? I mean, it, yeah, it's stretched. I mean, yeah. basically, it's 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 like producing leather, except you use lime, mm -hmm. and you so you have to soak it first in lime. So it has you you know you've got a skin just like you do with. Um, the beginning of leather, 
and you soak it until all the hair falls off and all the flesh falls off, so it's incredibly stinky. Um, and you and you're using lime to get rid of all that, and then you have to rinse it and rinse it and rinse, you know, and then you have to stretch it and scrape it. So they get stretched on frames, and they still make um, parchment vellum um, for very special circumstances in a few parts of the world, um, and it's still the same process. You have to you have to um, stretch it on a frame, and then you have to scrape it um, and. And so it becomes smooth, and then and then in the end, you know, you buff it, you rub it, so that you get a very very smooth surface. But it always ends up by having two sides. So that's one of the things they often talk about when you talk about with medieval manuscripts is that there's there's a, a, a in a sense a lighter, smoother side and a rougher side. Um, so that's that's the rough side, and that's the smooth side, and then this will be the rough side that follows on. So and 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 sometimes the colour contrasts are quite quite dramatic because the rougher side tends to pick up dust or you know slight thing you know things in the and grub, grubbiness from people's hands and so on, whereas the smoother side, so it's the flesh and the hair side. Flesh side is the smooth side, hair side is the slightly rough side, um, and yeah, and it's often mentioned how when. It's often mentioned that <laughs> um, the, um, um, the, the you know that that, that when you, they're bound together, that you never have a hair side and a flesh side together. But that's simply because of the way they're folded into their gatherings. It's not like a an artistic, um, you know, I don't know, premise or something. You know, they haven't said, oh, we can't have a hair side next to it. It just happens that you don't. Um, but it also means you don't get unfortunate contrast from one side of the page to the other, because you're going to have a hair, you're going to have a flesh side, and then you're going to have a hair side. In some people, you can see the follicles. Can't yes, you? you can in some. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about whether it's you know sheep or you know cow or goat or um, you know or pig, um, and some people think they can sort of tell by there's various little things you can. You can possibly guess um, by, I mean, pigs tend to have more hair follicles apparently, so it should be easier to tell. But having said that, um, people also say, you know, we think they're all domestic animals, but they could also be some wild, I mean, it could be squirrel, you know. I mean, there could be all sorts of animals that we don't know now or don't think now as sources for skins. Mm -hmm. um, but in the medieval period, they were freely available because of um, the fact that they were more pop. Populous. There was more of them, and people used them for different things. So, it's just basically using the whole animal. They don't kill the, they don't tend to kill the animals for the skin, but it's the skin is just the byproduct of all the other things that they're killing animals for. Is that is that is that a is that a factor in their preservation? I know with the Treaty of Waitangi, I think it, it, it attracted like rodents and. Because of the because of the animal the animal content yeah um, it, on the whole vellum lasts a lot better than paper that's it in a nutshell it's tougher it's stronger it doesn't react to water and to heat as badly as paper um, it'll cockle it'll go a bit you know the surface will wobble um, it can get wet and the ink or the paint will run but the vellum will still be there it's incredibly tough. So 
I think on the whole, um, it's a whole lot tougher than, I mean, you know, some of the ones that we have here, we do have um, evidence of insects, not, I hesitate, well, no, I quickly say, not because of anything the library has done, (laughs) Um, but they're all in books made of paper. Um, They're not in in vellum. I haven't seen any. There are sometimes um, signs of... um, scraping you know bones sort of jutting out and so holes made in the in the skin as they um as they um create the skin and if they saw a hole um they would sew it up and we have got some manuscripts where there, where you can actually see the stitching um where it's been pulled together around a hole um you wouldn't tend to do but that for a book. But you wouldn't want a luxury one because this, this, to this, no, this is top quality. So, no, there's no there's no holes in this one. <laughs> but there are in some of the cheaper ones, like the textbooks, student textbooks. There's some pretty, <laughs> some pretty, pretty scungy ones out there. <laughs> and they're not all gorgeous and glorious. Um, some of them are quite rough. Um, and those ones can have holes in them. Um, but these, this one hasn't. Um, so, yeah, remarkably um, enduring is how I would describe poetry. But I think on that note, we can, we can probably finish there. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. The layout... The stamp. <laughs> and as I could, it could be a lot worse. It's not on the miniature. We could have, we could have had that. But it's all provenance, isn't it? It is all provenance, and of course, it is a very early stamp. We we, we must say um, that it was. This was done in the 1880s when it first came into the um, library with us. And I have I have been looked at accusingly as if it was just me by groups of people. Which, you know, it just shows you how inured you can get to it when you're part of the, you know, part, when you see it quite frequently. I don't even really see the stamp anymore. Coming up next... One of the things about Gray, because he's not so well known now, but he was incredibly well known um, during the 18th century and 19th century, and lots of people knew Elegy in a country churchyard, but he also created some of these phrases that people often think now must be Shakespeare because they, they know it's a sort of idiom, you know, and there's, there's the, you know, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. This is grey, and that was, that's the page it's got it in. Uncover a truly unique collection. Visit Kura Heritage Collections online. Find them under Heritage on Auckland Library's website. This podcast was brought to you by Ngā Pā Takakūrero, Auckland Libraries. Please join us again soon.